I'm Sunshine Holtz, and the today's scripture reading comes from Exodus 32, verses 1 through 8. When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Come on, they said, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. So Aaron said, take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. All the people took the rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. Then Aaron took the gold, melted it down, and molded it into the shape of a calf. When the people saw it, they exclaimed, O Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Aaron saw how excited the people were, so he built an altar in front of the calf. Then he announced, Tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. The people got up early the next morning to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. After this, they celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry. The Lord told Moses, Quick, go down the mountain. Your people whom you brought from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. How quickly they have turned away from the way I have commanded them to live. They have melted down gold and made a calf. They have bowed down and sacrificed to it. They are saying, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Thanks, Sonny. I recently heard a sad and sickening story, um, or I once heard a sad and sickening story, about uh, a wife who was cheating on her husband. And when she would go over to her illicit lover's house, uh, they would proceed to turn down all of the family photos in the home of the illicit lover. So they'd turn the family photos face down. Um, and uh, And then she would remove his wedding ring. Um, almost as if to, or almost as if they were intentionally turning a blind eye uh, to the sin that they were engaged in. And I tell you this story because today in our passage, Israel is doing much the same thing. They are taking off their wedding bands almost as soon as they put them on. Uh, they are turning down the family photo of the groom Yahweh and the bride Israel, and they're fashioning in its place a false image of a groom of their own making. They are rejecting the groom of Yahweh as he is, and they're creating a false image of their own making for the groom that they wish they had instead of the groom that they have. They're cheating. They're cheating on Yahweh. Today is a passage of Israel stepping out of their marriage to Yahweh. Now that we're moving into the latter half of Exodus, I want to just quickly recap how we get here. Chapters 1 through 15 of the book cover Israel's time in Egypt and their miraculous escape from slavery in Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea. And then chapters 16 to 18 recount their travels from Egypt to Mount Sinai. Here is a map of the most likely route that Israel took from Egypt down to Mount Sinai. And you can see Sinai here in the Sinai Peninsula. It's one of several proposed routes. We don't know exactly the route they took, but this is the most likely one. And then the peak of Mount Sinai is traditionally associated with Jebel Musa. This is a Google Earth image of that mountain peak in the Sinai Peninsula. And the images from the top of Jebel Musa are absolutely breathtaking. So here's a panoramic that was taken at midnight from the top of Mount Sinai. Absolutely beautiful. You can hike up to the top. Here's some morning shots, kind of the the sun just coming up over the rocks there. Absolutely gorgeous. Here's another one. I, I really like this one. It's really pretty as the sun rises from the peak. And then here's, someone even took a picture of the sunrise from the top of Mount Sinai. This is what it looks like when the sun is coming up if you are at the peak of Mount Sinai. There is a 
chapel at the peak that was built in 1934, and they built that over what is believed to be the rock from which the Lord took the rock to inscribe the Ten Commandments on it. So they built this chapel over the rock from which they took those tablet rocks, or what is believed to be the rocks that God used for the Ten Commandments. And then there is a nearby plain at the foot of the mountain called Er Raha, which is believed to be the location where Israel set up camp at the base of Mount Sinai. And, and this is also believed to be then the site of this debacle about the golden calf that we're studying today. So Israel has come to this Mount Sinai, and it's at Mount Sinai that God is covenanting with Israel. He is constituting them as a nation. And you and I understand the word covenant according to marriages, right? We talk about the marriage covenant, where a husband pledges himself to his wife, and a wife pledges herself to her husband. And this covenant at Mount Sinai is like a marriage ceremony between Yahweh and the people Israel. And Yahweh will promise himself to his people Israel, and his people Israel in turn will promise themselves to Yahweh. And, and they'll receive the law or the terms of that covenant. The Ten Commandments are a summary of that law, and that law will help Israel understand how they ought to relate to Yahweh, how Israel ought to relate to other Israelites, and how Israel ought to relate to other non-Israelites. Here's what the Life Application Bible says. It says, God's people had no Bible and few religious traditions to learn from. God had to start from scratch and teach them how to worship him. It's basically starting over. It's rebuilding the nation. And he's teaching them how they're going to be in relationship to one another, how this marriage between Yahweh and Israel is going to work. And in this act of being unfaithful on Israel's part, I want to look at four aspects of the golden calf debacle, four aspects that we can learn from, four aspects that hopefully will turn us away from our sin and help us examine our own lives so that we ought not repeat the same mistakes, so that we ought not cheat on Yahweh like Israel did. Four aspects of the golden calf story. Number one, and this is the most obvious and comprehensive one, is that Israel made their own God. The golden calf, first and foremost, is an act of idolatry. Now look at the Ten Commandments, all right? Let's go back to Exodus chapter 20. The golden calf debacle takes place in Exodus 32. Let's go back 12 chapters where Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments from Yahweh. And look at commandment number one in Exodus 20, verses 2 to 4. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other gods but me. This is commandment number one. Then commandment number two says, You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heaven or on the earth or in the sea. So commandment number one, Yahweh is the only God. Yahweh is God most high. And commandment number two, no fashioning idols. So in the golden calf, we got commandment one and two are being broken already. Boom, boom, fail, fail. Commandments number one and two are a failure. Now, now look at commandment number three in Exodus 20, verse 7. It says, you must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. Now, when I was a kid, this was often taught as no swearing, no using cuss words, no swear words, right? Or no saying OMG. And the truth is, is we ought not use profanity. And we certainly should not say OMG. I would way rather Christians swear than say OMG. All right? So we certainly shouldn't say OMG. And this was, this was taught to me as 
Don't, don't swear. Don't say OMG. And uh, it's kind of there. But the truth is, is I would rather go somewhere else in the Bible for the biblical basis to not swear and not say OMG. I would rather us go to a place like Ephesians 4.29 for the case for not swearing, which says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So to me, this is the definitive no swearing, no OMG passage, not commandment number three. Because when you investigate commandment number three, the NLT and the NIV both use this word misuse. So behind misuse is the Hebrew word nasah, which means to lift up okay, or to carry. So this gives a whole new meaning to NASA. We have liftoff, right? No, there's, no, there's actually no official correlation. <laughs> it's just, just a mnemonic device when you're taking Hebrew, right? <laughs> NASA, to lift up. We have liftoff, right? But yeah, so this means do not lift up the name of Yahweh unworthily. Do not carry the name of Yahweh in an unworthy manner. Here's how John Goldingay, professor of Old Testament, translates this commandment number three. He says, you will not lift up the name of Yahweh your God in respect of something empty because Yahweh will not free of guilt a person who lifts up his name in respect of something empty. So this is commandment number three. It's not don't swearing. It's do not lift up his name. Do not carry his name unworthily. Okay. And Israel, look at what they're doing with the golden calf in 32.5. Aaron saw how excited the people were so he built an altar in front of the calf. Then he announced, tomorrow will be a festival to the capital L-O-R-D, which means we can substitute the personal name Yahweh there. So he's calling the golden calf Yahweh. You see what's happening here? They are lifting up something empty like this idol golden calf, and they're calling it Yahweh. They are lifting up this creation of their own hands and they're calling that Yahweh. So commandments one, two, and three, boom, all a failure in this golden calf debacle. Now some of us might say, how could they be so dumb? What idiots? You lift up a statue and you call it God? How could they do that? And the truth is, is, you and I are just as prone to idolatry as the Israelites ever were. Yeah, sure, we're not lifting up statues and calling them Yahweh. But some of us are lifting up our political discourse and we're calling it Yahweh. And we're lifting up the fighting that's going on between the factions and it's all about, oh, what's the latest headline saying, oh man, did you see so-and-so owned so-and-so and Elon Musk bought Twitter, that'll show him. He's the hero we need. What? Oh, good, we got to get the right candidate in there. Election season's coming up in Wisconsin. we got to make sure we choose the right candidate because if we don't, we're in big trouble. So we're lifting up this political discourse and we're calling that Yahweh. And rather than putting our hopes into Yahweh himself, we're lifting up this political discourse and we're calling it Yahweh. Some of us are actually lifting up our children and we're calling them Yahweh. Because if you looked at our family schedule for the week, it would revolve around the children and their activities. We can't say no to what our kids want to be in. And where our kids' will goes in the home. And the truth is, is we would actually be better off if 
Yahweh was Yahweh in the home, and the kids weren't Yahweh. Some of us are even putting our kids above our spouses. I'll just tell you this. So one time, I actually told Bryn with my own mouth, I said, I'm not married to you, I'm married to your mom. <laughs> like, you remember your place. <laughs> this is unfair. She's feeling so self-conscious right now. So it was a long time ago that I said that. But we're lift. Oh, good, you don't remember? Okay. <laughs> it's true. We lift up our kids and we call them Yahweh. Some of us are lifting up social media and we're calling that Yahweh and we're spending time that we ought to be sleeping or actually producing and creating something else like the Lord designed us to instead of consuming. And I've talked about this before, but it's really creepy, isn't it? How the very posture of using a phone is a worship prayerful posture. Your head is bowed, your hands are together, you're quiet, and you're completely invested in the screen when we ought to be worshiping Yahweh. And we're literally lifting up something empty like our phones, and we're calling that Yahweh. Some of us are lifting up our jobs, and we're calling that Yahweh. Some of us are lifting up wealth, and we're calling that Yahweh. Some of us are lifting up personal appearance, either for ourselves or the consumption of others' personal appearances, and we're calling that Yahweh. No, we are just as prone to idolatry as these Israelites were. Here's what Paul says in Romans 1.25, and he had to have been thinking about the golden calf when he wrote this. He said, they traded the truth about God for a lie, so they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself who is worthy of eternal praise. They traded the real Yahweh for a lie of Yahweh, a golden calf. And then if, if you would read Romans 1.25 and go on to 26 and 27, Paul begins to link idolatry with sexual immorality. And it's fascinating how often these two go together. Look at Exodus 32, verse 6. The people got up early the next morning to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. After this, they celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry. Some translations say they got up to play. Almost certainly, the golden calf was made in the form of the Egyptian god Apis, who was a bull. And the Egyptian god Apis was the god of agriculture and fertility. And you know how the pagans worship gods of fertility with sexual immorality. And so the Israelites are saying to each other, hey, we know how this is done. We know how to worship. I'm sick of worshiping how Yahweh tells me to. I want to worship him how I want to. And we're going to look to all the other nations around us to how we ought to worship. Here's what R.C. Sproul says. He says, The cow gave no law and demanded no obedience. It had no wrath or justice or holiness to be feared. It was deaf, dumb, and impotent, but at least it could not intrude on their fun and call them to judgment. This was a religion designed by men, practiced by men, and ultimately useless for men. Because it doesn't get in our way. It's our own creation, so we have total control over it. And it won't get in the way of what we want to do. It won't get in the way of our own appetites. Which brings us to aspect number two. Israel sought their own appetites. So it's not about developing a want for Yahweh. This is about feeding what their flesh craved. They indulged their own appetites. When a husband cheats on his wife, all of us, when we hear about it, think, oh, that wife must be devastated. Like, how would that feel? 
to have your spouse step out on you like that. That would be devastating. Well, the same goes for Yahweh. The people are seeking their own appetites at the expense of Yahweh, over and above Yahweh. And Yahweh feels that. Look at what the prophet Ezekiel says. He's reflecting on this golden calf incident among other idolatrous moments in Israel's history. And and here's what the prophet says, giving us a window into how God feels. Ezekiel 6 verse 9. They will recognize how hurt I am by their unfaithful hearts and lustful eyes that long for their idols. Being unfaithful in a marriage is a spouse privileging what they want, privileging the appetites of their flesh over and above their spouse and at the expense of their spouse. And this is what Israel is doing to Yahweh, privileging their own appetites over and above Yahweh and at the expense of Yahweh. He feels this. I hurt. Aaron sought the appetite of human approval. Aaron saw an opportunity to become the people's hero. He wanted favor among men as opposed to favor among Yahweh. Look at Exodus 32, verse 5. Aaron saw how excited the people were, so he built an altar in front, uh, in front of the calf. Then he announced, Tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. Aaron's looking around, seeing how excited everybody's getting. He's going, yeah, yeah, let's do this thing. You know what? Bring all your gold. Yeah, yeah. We'll melt this down. I'll form and fashion this. Yeah, I can. You know what? That guy Moses, he's been gone a long time. And I have a real opportunity here to gain some favor with the people. Maybe I can even usurp Moses as far as favor with the people goes. Because they're frustrated with that guy. He's been gone up on that mountain. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really take this opportunity here. Yeah, let's build this thing. Aaron's appetite was to seek approval among men. Because if his appetite... He would have said to those people, knock it off. We're not doing this. In fact, I don't want to hear any more talk about creating any sort of God. We're going to wait for Moses to come back with the next word from the Lord. So go home. Stop thinking about this. Put this out of your mind. Put it out of your mouths. And if I hear about this anymore, then there will be severe ramifications for that person. Put it out. We're done. But he didn't. He said, let's build this thing. So the question goes for us is, what appetite are we feeding? Are we feeding the appetites of our flesh? Or are we feeding our appetite for the spirit? Are we feeding the appetites of our flesh or are we feeding the appetite for Yahweh? The question is not, do I eat or not? The question is, what do I eat? This is not neutral space here. If you don't eat, you die. So you got to eat. So what appetite are you feeding? That's the question. Here's what Paul says in Romans 13, 14. He says, And don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires. Starve the beast. Starve the sin beast. The more you feed the sin beast, the hungrier he gets. But when you starve the sin beast, 
And when you feed the appetite for the Spirit, the hungrier the appetite for the Spirit becomes. Starve the beast. Feed the Spirit. Here's the next aspect. Israel forgot Yahweh's goodness. In building the calf, Israel forgot how good Yahweh is. Look at Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Come on, they said, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. So already it takes Moses a little while to come down, and they're forgetting. God did all these amazing things for Israel, and when it takes Moses longer than they would have hoped to come down from the mountain, they're already forgetting all of the good things that Yahweh did. They're disregarding Yahweh's goodness in breaking them out of slavery that lasted several hundred years. They're disregarding God's act of freedom by building an idol. And even worse, they are misattributing God's good act of liberation to Moses. Look at 32.1. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. Moses didn't bring you to here. Moses didn't bring you out of the land of Egypt. Yahweh brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then they're misattributing this act of liberation to the golden calf as well. Look what Aaron says. Then Aaron took the gold, melted it down, and molded it into the shape of a calf. When the people saw it, they exclaimed, O Israel, these are the gods that brought you out of the land of Egypt. No, they didn't. They didn't bring you out of the land of Egypt. Yahweh brought you out of the land of Egypt. Not Moses, not this golden calf that you made. That was Yahweh's goodness to you. Yahweh's good act. And then they build this golden calf with gold. Well, this is a freed people from Israel. I mean, freed people from Egypt. Where did they get this gold from? Aaron says, take the gold rings from your ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. All the people took the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. And here's how the movie The Ten Commandments depicts this collection of the gold. And I love how, I mean, look at this guy right here with this cup that's like half his size. You know, as if, as if a wandering freed people from slavery are, are walking through the wilderness, you know. Yeah, I, I had to leave everything else behind, but I got my gold cup, you know. Like, I, I mean, maybe. Maybe, maybe, right? But like, what I just laugh about is I can imagine, you know, the set designers and the, the, the prop managers for the movie being like, okay, go behind stage and find anything that we can use for the gold collection scene. And like, they find this planter, you know, and they're like, ah, we can spray paint this. Yeah, that'd be great, you know? And then the guy who had the idea to spray paint it made sure that he's right in front of the camera with the gold cup, you know? As if they're carrying that with them through the wilderness. But uh, where'd they get all this gold from, you know? Well, Yahweh granted them favor as they left Egypt. Here's what Exodus 12, 35 to 36 says. And the people of Israel did as Moses had instructed. They asked the Egyptians for clothing and articles of silver and gold. Yahweh caused the Egyptians to look favorably on the Israelites, and they gave the Israelites whatever they asked for. So they stripped the Egyptians of their wealth. Some translations say they plundered Egypt. So even on their way out the door, people are loading them up with cash. I'll pay you to get out of here. Just go. 
So that gold was an act of goodness from Yahweh. Look how good. I mean, Exodus, the former half, is, should be subtitled the goodness of Yahweh. He protected them when he sent his death angel to take out Egyptian boys. And then he punished the oppressors of Egypt with death of the livestock, boils, gnats, water turned into blood. I mean, this is just like a wonderful revenge story where the bad guys get what's coming to them. That's how good Yahweh's been to them. And then if that wasn't enough, when the captors pursue Israel, he makes a path for them to freedom. And even so, this path, right? He divides the waters of the Red Sea so Israel can escape from their captors. And you think, well, there was just water in that path. So they're probably having to really trudge through there, you know, and it's probably pretty muddy. But no, dry ground. I mean, he might as well have like rolled a red carpet for them across the Red Sea. That's how good he's being to his people. And then if that wasn't enough, it's not just like I'm going to have you escape from your captors. But he's like, I'm just going to take care of these guys once and for all for you. And he collapses the waters of the Red Sea onto Pharaoh and his army. Like, yeah, that's done. Go have your freedom now. Let's go covenant. Let's go marry each other. Now that I took care of these people that want to kill you. So good. So good. And he's so good to us. He's so good to us. Some, one of these days, I just need to sit and type all of the promises that just come to my mind and like see how long that list can go and just, and just you know, keep adding to it. You know, Bryn's writing this story right now on her Chromebook and she just keeps adding to it. I mean, I'm amazed at her mind that can just you know, expand a story out to literally like 26 plus chapters, you know, and she just keeps going. It's like, I should do that with the promises of God. That's how good he is. Before the foundations of the world, he loved us and chose us to be set apart as his people. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed his transgressions from us. Before he formed us in the womb, before our moms knew us, before our dads knew us, he knew us. And then he also formed us in the womb, so we can even count that as two. He prepares a place for us in his home someday where we will get to be with him in eternity. This is just scratching the surface. He is so good. And yet, we forget like that. Here's what Pastor Kevin DeYoung says. Sin is always an act of spiritual amnesia. Because we forget. And instead of the goodness of Yahweh, we forget the goodness of Yahweh. And he said, no, I think I'm going to play with its feces piles over here that my flesh wants. We forget how good Yahweh is. Last aspect, Israel is distanced from God. Sin is always an act of distancing from the source of life. Sin is always an act of distancing from Yahweh. If you read Exodus chapter 32 and 33, 32 is the golden calf. 32 is all the fallout of the golden calf. And then 33 is kind of the period on the golden calf and then the transition to what's next for Israel now. And so as the biblical author places a period on the golden calf episode at the beginning of 33, here's a window into how things have changed because of this act of sin now. Look at 33 verses 1 to 3. The Lord said to Moses, Get going, you and the people 
you brought up from the land of Egypt. Go up to the land I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I told them, I will give this land to your descendants, and I will send an angel before you to drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land that flows with milk and honey, but I will not travel among you, for you are a stubborn and rebellious people. If I did, I would surely destroy you along the way. Go on up to the land I've prepared for you, but I can't go with you. I'm not going with you this time. Because if I did, man, I'd probably just kill all of you. Probably just destroy all of you. I'm not going with you this time. So go on up. It's ready for you. But I can't go with you. I need some distance. I need some space from you. I can't go with you. And it's the same for marriages, isn't it? Someone's unfaithful or violates that marriage in some way. It's like, you know what, I, I don't want to be with you. I just, I need some space. You get a hotel for a week. I can't see your face around here for a while. You can see the kids for a little bit, but I just, you know, I, I don't want to see you. I don't want to be with you. I need some space from you. And the same goes for our sin. Distances us from God. And we see this in Genesis when Adam and Eve sin, and then what happens? They get kicked out of the garden, out of God's presence. Can't be in God's presence anymore. Need some space. And the same goes for this golden calf. Israel sins by creating this golden calf, and the Lord says, go on up, but I can't go with you. I need some space from you. That one hurts, and I've got to take a little while here. Because if I was too close to you, I'd probably just destroy you. So just, just you go. I don't want to go. The subtitle of this series on Exodus is called Fellowship with God because we learn from Exodus that we have a God who wants to be with us. We have a God who wants to share his presence with us. And we have a God who wants fellowship with his people. That's what we learn from the book of Exodus. And some of you maybe caught it in verse 2, but you saw that the Lord said, I will send an angel before you. The Hebrew there is malach, which means messenger. And now those of you that remember some of the early messages in this series are saying, huh, okay, so is that the angel or is that the angel of the Lord? What's the identity of this angel here? I know here it only says angel. We only get Malak. It doesn't say angel of the Lord. Angel of the Lord would be Malak Yahweh. But this is just a Malak, just a messenger. So is this the angel of the Lord? Is this the second person of the Trinity? Is this the angel in whom the Lord placed his name? Or is this like a messenger that God sends to deliver news, like, like he sent the, the angel to tell Mary that Mary was going to birth Jesus? Who is this? Is this the angel of the Lord here? Or is this just one of his messenger people? Yeah, no, they're not people. Messenger angels. Right. Who is this? Now, there's a ton of scholarly literature on this, and we don't have time to go down the rabbit hole that leads to this conclusion. But in conclusion... It, this will be the angel of the Lord that leads them. When all said and done, it is the angel of the Lord that's in the pillar of cloud and in the pillar of fire that will lead them to the promised land. That is the angel of the Lord. But here's what's really fascinating about that. Okay? At the golden calf, Israel sins and they're distanced from Yahweh and then Yahweh sends the Son of God to repair that distance, and restore fellowship. Following me here? 
Today, we sin and we are distanced from God and God sends His Son to die, to rise, and to ascend to repair that distance that we created in our, son, or in our sin. Let me say that one more time. If you take nothing away from today's message, take this away. Israel sins at the golden calf. They are distanced from God, and God sends His angel. God sends His Son, the pre-incarnate Son of God, to lead them and repair the distance that they created in their sin with God. And when we sin, it creates distance from God, so God sends His Son, Jesus, to die on the cross and rise so that He can repair the distance between us and God. You following me? Let me just let Colossians speak for what I'm trying to explain here. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were His enemies, separated from Him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. This is the Yahweh that we serve. Isaiah, I'll, why don't you come on forward? I'll invite Isaiah forward. He's going to play for our communion receiving. When... Israel had completed the golden calf. It says they feasted and they drank to the golden calf that they had made. Well, today we are going to do exactly the opposite. We are going to feast and we are going to drink to the Son of God who restores that distance that we create in our sin. So that's what we are going to do today is feast and drink to the one who restores our fellowship with Yahweh.